everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. Hey, everyone. On this episode of this show, I sat down with Larry Paul. Larry is a really fascinating guy. Uh, I became familiar with him a few months ago. A friend of mine uh, introduced him to me. Um, he has an amazing Instagram channel, a YouTube channel, uh, predominantly about uh, pyramids and, and specifically uh, the Great Pyramids of Giza. Uh, he, he does a little bit of work with uh, some of the other pyramids as well. Uh, but it was really fascinating to have him on. Um, He's a guy who I think is doing really interesting and beautiful research. 
um, on the Great Pyramids, about the sacred geometry, things uh, working with the Fibonacci sequence, uh, all the different mathematical calculations, the, the numbers of pi, uh, the, some of the prime numbers, and, and really showing the, the interconnectedness. Uh, not only between the Egyptian cultures, but cultures all over the world, uh, and, and really this very high-level engineering, mathematics, uh, design uh, within the pyramids themselves, within the layouts of the pyramids, uh, within the, the relationship of the earth, even uh, kind of showing the, uh, that they knew the speed of light, that they knew the, 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 the diameter of the earth, that these are all mathematically built into the pyramids. Uh, so it really fascinates me and, and really fascinates me with my own interest in, in ancient cultures and also this interconnectedness of, of, of things and people and cultures. So uh, it was wonderful to sit down with him. We didn't have a ton of time, uh, but we began to touch on some of these subjects. And uh, hopefully we do uh, round to some point in the future and go uh, a bit more uh, deep into his work. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really amazing way to do that. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all of the people who are supporting that way, to all of the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, it's really what allows me to continue to, to, to make these uh, podcast episodes. Uh, there's also an ability to donate directly via PayPal. I'll put both of those links in the show notes if you're not able to do that. Uh, as always, just doing some of the really small things makes a really big difference with helping to get the show out to a bigger audience, helping with the algorithms. So if you're viewing this on YouTube, uh, which could be a, a good option for this show, especially because uh, he did a, a visual presentation, um, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bells, liking the videos, uh, those things always uh, really help with the algorithms, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section. Um, and uh, if you're listening to this on the audio versions, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are still the big ones. So following or subscribing to the show and with Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a very big help. So uh, I think that's it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Larry. Running up from the maze. Running up from the maze. Running out of the maze. So yeah, Larry, thank you for coming on. Uh, we were just chatting a little bit before we started, and um, you were recommended to me by a, a very good friend of mine who has uh, kind of common interests. And uh, I was originally a, a big fan of Robert Grant, and, and then I know you were, were friends of him and, and leading some tours as well. Uh, and I started looking at your stuff, and, and it was very fascinating. As I was telling you, I've, I've been living in the, the originally the Peruvian Amazon and then the, the Peruvian Andes, and 
a big fascination of mine is ancient culture and kind of esoteric knowledge and um, uh, and just this interconnectedness of things. And and so the the great pyramids of Egypt have always been something that have truly fascinated me. And ever since I was a kid, I grew up in Washington D.C. and I remember going to you know all the national museums and and just being fascinated, especially by the the Egyptian section. And uh, it almost seemed. Uh, like there, there was so much knowledge there that that we seemed to be kind of poking around the surface, but that there was also a lot of mystery there, and and that's what really fascinated me. And that's one thing that I really enjoy about your work and your channel is is just really being in being able to tap into some of these things that that seem very overlooked and are often kind of uh, maybe thrown aside as coincidence. Uh, but but when the coincidences start adding up, and, and you know, especially these things with with mathematics and geometry, um, the, the the precision that the, the the work there was done with is just for me, it's mind boggling. So um, I think the audience will will really enjoy this uh, this episode with you. Um, Maybe to start, you could just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, kind of your background, and, and what got you interested in, in the work you're doing, and, and especially with, uh, with the Egyptian pyramids. Yeah, well, uh, as a young man, uh, I had a good uh, education at a well-known Eastern school and uh, college education. When I graduated, I still felt, and I gave one of the valedictory, valedictory addresses uh, when I graduated, and uh, I kind of said, you know, we're all, uh, I'm, we're all, we all live in a yellow submarine. We're all prisoners on spaceship Earth, Bucky Fuller, um, and you know, we don't know where we're headed. That was so. That was you know. So here I am as a you know graduating from an elite college, giving a valedictory and telling everybody we don't know what we're doing. And so that's really where I was. So I set out to go in search of my soul. I know the philosophers say you can never find the meaning of life, but I thought that's stupid. Why search if you're not going to find? So I instinctively set out, not take, not deciding what courses I was going to take next semester, but deciding I wanted to go in search of my soul. And I did that. So I bought an old Jeep. Uh, it's 1973. I bought a 1952 Willys. So a 20-year-old vehicle, geared low. I put a sign in the side, Alaska or bust. And uh, I was going to go up to Alaska, try and find, try and get work on the pipeline, which was paying big money at that time, because I, I thought I might want to do graduate work at either Harvard Divinity School or the University of Chicago Divinity School. I just happened in the providence of God to know the deans at both schools. Uh, Guy Martin was the dean of admissions up at uh, Harvard Divinity. He had been the dean at the school where I got my undergraduate degree, and he left that school to go up to Harvard. And then it... Uh, University of Chicago Divinity School is Martin E. Marty, the famous theologian, was a friend of my family. And so I could have got into either place, but I, I wanted to be able to afford it. So I wanted to have money. So I was, you know, those places, Harvard Divinity School, University, I wanted to, you know, get into God, thinking about God, talking about God. So I set off for Alaska. And uh, I did make it to Alaska, Alaska or bust. And uh, along the way, I found myself. You know, I, I found my relationship to God, I found my calling. And uh, I felt at that time, 1973, like the rest of my life would be downhill because if you, if you have a connection with God, then whatever comes your way in terms of tragedy, disaster, happiness, elation, whatever it is, good or bad, you put it in the context of being part, you know, and you're part in the universe. And, and so I can say that's true. I'm uh, 73 now, so that, that's 50 years ago that, that, that I took off in search of my soul. And, and what I found, I still hold today. 
you know, that that uh, there is a God that runs this universe, uh, that he's uh, th that he's personal and that he can be known or experienced or, you know, uh, prayed to uh, and in the hope of there being a real uh, conversation going on there. And so I guess that's the that's that's probably and that's probably the first time I've ever given that answer to that question, because usually I kind of go a different direction. But so that, that's probably who I am. So you mentioned Robert Grant. He hired me to be his lead teacher uh, on his Alpha Chi Omega tour this past uh, February. And uh, I talked with Robert today. I, I uh, Veritasium, uh, the big YouTube channel on, on science, put out a uh, video today. I think it was could have been yesterday, yesterday or today. And it was about knots, like you tie a knot and how that's a, that's a branch of mathematics. And it was fascinating. Watch it if you can, like all his stuff. It's just fascinating about knots, the properties that knots have. And there's knots that are not knots, which are called unknots. And then there's those that are knots. And then, there, and then there's prime knots, just like there's prime numbers, there's prime knots. And there's no formula that's been that's been figured out as to how to do it. So I thought Robert Grant, you know, his work with prime numbers and and his discovery of semi primes, which allows for the uh, uh, the breaking of public keys, basically all public keys, like in other words, the encryptions that that all major companies and you personally use when you put a password in a site are based on distant prime numbers, which are very hard for even modern calculators, even quantum computers almost to calculate these distant prime numbers. It takes a long time. The computer will heat up, and it might be a hundred years before it figures it out. So Robert Grant found a way to quickly find out these prime. Anyway, so I said to him, Robert. Watch this fascinating. Watch this uh, veritasium thing, and nuts, and see if you're if you can solve the problem. Because in this episode, it talks about all the advances that were made in knots. Mathematicians who got into knots as a subfield, and it's just fascinating. So I, I, I Robert said fascinating. He happens to be in Alexandria, uh, Egypt right now, and uh, it's because he sent me a picture. I said, "Where's that?" You know. But uh, he said, you know, he's interested, so he's going to look into it. It'd be interesting to see if he can take his work in, in uh, uh, you know, semi-primes in, in the math world to the knot world. I'm interested in knots because I used to be a, a tree climber. Here, here's a chainsaw cut right there. There's a chainsaw cut right there, you know, where you're holding the you're into the tree here, and sometimes the saw slips. And I held myself in old school. I didn't, the modern uh, tree work is done with mountain climbing equipment with carabiners and stuff, but I did it the old school way with just tying knots. So I was held into the tree by a knot. So knots were very important to me. And my whole repelling up and down a tree was based on a knot that I tied, not on a carabiner or something. And even the big limbs I would head down so it didn't hit the house, the knots I tied on those were critical that the house didn't get. So knots were interesting to me. And uh, it just, so anyways, fascinating. Um, so, uh, you mentioned about mysteries. Uh, I gave a talk yesterday in my local area in Tennessee, and a lot of people came because they put my picture in the paper, and it was called the Mysteries of Egypt. So a lot of people came locally, and, uh, you know, simple people, good people. And I just talked about a lot of the Mysteries of Egypt because, you know, there are so many of them. And uh, so, I don't know, that's me. <laughs> so what, what got you interested in, in specifically in Egypt? Well, when I had this encounter with with God and, and my calling in life, when when I when in search of my soul, uh, I got interested in prophecy because I thought, how do you know the future? You know, so looking at Edgar Casey, looking at uh, Nostradamus, I read all of Nostradamus's prophecy, Bible prophecy. I got into that. How can you know the future? You know, 
and and yet there's a lot of evidence of prophecies actually doing that. So in the course of that, someone told me that the Great Pyramid was a prophecy. That's how I got into it. I learned different ways that various researchers have indeed looked to the Great Pyramid as a prophecy. If you say that the that the Great Pyramid is the pillar of Enoch, it goes back to Enoch and in the the two things that all those ancient legends say are that number one, it would be a repository of the science of the ancients, and the Great Pyramid is certainly that pi phi, the fine structure constant, I mean, all the different things you can you can find in the Great Pyramid. But the second thing that the Pillar of Enoch would have would be warnings of catastrophes to come. In other words, prophecies. And so that's one of the one of the things that's kept me busy. Uh, at Giza, making a lot of discoveries, and and it's just I, I don't know. You know, I'm just a, a normal guy in a sense, you know, and not like Robert, who's a polymath. You know, I math was I hated math in school, and I've only gotten better. Like Graham Hancock said, I got good in math, better in math because the Great Pyramid required that I do it. That's that's kind of my story, and uh, so uh, you know, I uh, uh, lost my train of thought now. <laughs> um, I, I just all the, the the work I've done there. It's like, oh, I remember what I was going to say, like. It just keeps coming. I keep thinking, well, you know, I'm going to hit a dry spot, you know, like your writer, you hit a writer's block. But every time I go there, I make more discoveries because I'm searching. But I still feel like, gosh, I was just so lucky or, you know, whatever. But they, they keep coming. And I feel like if I directed my searching more and better, I could find some of these prophecies. Now, some books have been written that say that the Giza Plateau does set up a uh, calendric type prophecy. Uh, Let's see, I think Gary Osborne uh, wrote a book uh, called The Giza Code, if I, if I remember right, the, or maybe it was in The Giza Prophecy. And they say the line between the satellite pyramids of Khufu and Menkara uh, are a precessional line. And the Sphinx is at a certain, the Sphinx is in that line, it's a, or it's at a, a perpendicular to that line. It sets a certain point. So they, they make some mileage out of that. And uh, I do think that properly understood, there is waiting to be uncovered a major prophetic um, timeline. Now, I, I should say this, that I, I've got all kinds of pyramid books. I've got a big library, and there's one, one group of books I have is what from some people call the Pyramidiots, largely Christian expositors of the Great Pyramid. They were really into the idea that one inch in the Great Pyramid equals one year. And to me, that's a totally rational consideration because there's a total link between time and measure. You know, there really, as a matter of fact, one of the things that Jesus said, he said, uh, which of you by taking thought could add one cubit to your own stature? Now, Jesus was talking about the futility of worry. Why are you worrying? You, your worrying is not going to add anything to your life. But hidden in this general Eastern mystical teaching about don't worry so much, which of you, by taking thought, could add one cubit, that's a measure of length, to your own stature? And the Greek word means your, your lifespan, your age. So Jesus likened a measure, a cubit, to a time span, your age. So that's linking, uh, that's link, and just like uh, if you take a one meter pendulum, one meter long, and swing it at 30 degrees, it swings out an arc of one royal cubit. So it shows the intimate connection between the cubit and the meter which Robert Grant talks about a lot. But it swings out that one royal cubit in exactly one second. So now you've got measure and time connected. 
And so, you know, and, and Einstein, you know, obviously there's a, there's a relationship between measure and time. So given that idea, those pyramidiots maybe weren't so idiotic in trying to say that an inch could equal a year. And they did, there, it's really some tremendous things that they found if you follow that. Like they say, this is the creation, this is the point of the Exodus. And there's exactly the number of inches that there are if you follow a biblical chronology. And then from the Exodus to the time of Christ, up the first ascending passage, the same number of inches is the actual number of years between the Exodus and the coming of Christ. So that that's one way that, and then, and then of course, a lot of them said that from there, you know, the grand gallery was in like the, the age of Pisces, the, the Christian dispensation. And then you get up to the great step and now you're on a horizontal dick dipping down in the antechamber before you get to the king's chamber. So that's like almost all traditions talk about tribulations before the end time of trouble, uh, you know, tribulation, chaos. That's what that final antechamber would symbolize. And so various years were given, and many, because the pyramid changes at that point from limestone to granite, they suggested there's a different time scale up there than an inch for a year. And so all these, these various things that, you know, uh, Gary Osborne and the you know, the, the processional clock that's on Giza, the pyramidians saying that there's an inch for a year. I think that properly understood there is hidden away something that could be helpful because in a sense, you know, well, what good does it do if you know the disaster's coming before somebody else? Well, look at all the preppers. Look at all the people doing prep, prepping. Why are they doing that? Some people think that it makes a difference to have food stored than to not have it. And uh, so I suppose, you know, it, it depends on your outlook. If you just say, I don't care if the world's coming to an end, let it kill me where I am. And, you know, I keep smoking my cigarettes and, you know, drinking my beer and, you know, we're fine. But and, and in that sense, you know, the that doesn't turn me away because, again, my, my answer to your question is my interest in prophecy is what led me to the Great Pyramid. Once I got to the Great Pyramid, it led to all kinds of other things. And maybe I put on the back shelf a little bit that hunt for, uh, the, the foretelling of events to come, but I do think it's there, you know, so that's part of what leads me on my searches in Egypt. A, a lot of your content, I mean, you're, you're, you're working a lot, you know, even though you said mathematics is in your forte, but, but it's something that, that even working with the great pyramids has taught you. And, uh, you, you know, you seem very rational and very science-based, and yet it's also interesting because you you have this interest in in in, in spirituality. Um, in, in one of your videos, you mentioned a really interesting idea that the ancients, and I think you said the quote was that theology is the queen of the sciences. And it, it seems like for a lot of people in the modern world, the idea of science and theology or science and spirituality are, are very separate fields. And yet it seems like what you were pointing towards for these ancient people was that actually they were perhaps one in the same. And even from that quote, theology being the queen of the sciences. Um, and that seems like something that, that you're, you know, you very much walk those two paths as well. Um, where do you think that break came from because also when i look at the pyramids that there's something incredibly scientific about them rational about them the yeah. the, the geometry the, the 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 craftsmanship the engineering is just it's phenomenal and yet there's also for me something deeply spiritual i mean deeply religious i mean rites and 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 ritual and and probably initiatory experiences and yet all of these things were tied into this in, into this one system yeah 
Well, I think that the Egyptian society, some consider the first you know, major civilization, is closest to the golden age of the past. And, uh, you know, a golden age is characterized by a great flourishing of knowledge, uh, usually a cessation of war for a period, so energies can be put into uh, studying the best things instead of how to make weapons. And uh, so I think Enoch lived in a time like that. You know, the Bible says that uh, Enoch walked with God and was taken. So Enoch walked with God. So that's a period where, and, and yet Enoch, I think, absolutely is the father of metrology. I think the word inch comes from Enoch. Anciently, there were no vowels. So Enoch would be N-C-H. Inch is N-C-H. And so if he's the father of metrology, because as Robert Grant and Alan Green have said, there's an aboriginal connection between the cubit, the meter, and the foot. They're all related. They're, they're ontological and part of nature. Enoch knew that, and he helped, I think, set the original metrology. And so Enoch, Inch, metrology, he walked with God. So that's saying this super scientist, because metrology is total science, it's, it's part of, it's what Egyptologists and archaeologists don't use, which they should. They use pottery a lot. They, the, a certain pottery style indicates a certain... Metrology is the same thing. What's the length? Is it a meter? Is it, is it an ancient remen? Is it a royal cubit? Is it a foot? Those are all going to indicate maybe different time periods and things. A lot can be learned. And since the ancients did, it's so obvious that they put meaning into these measurements. And that it should be part of forensic scientists today in archaeology, but it's not. Metrologists, John Neal, who wrote all done with mirrors, John Michelle, View Over Atlantis, Harry Sievertson, Measurement of the Gods. These are the world-class metrologists. They're not considered part of the mainstream of science. They're like this subculture, and yet they're totally rational people who have studied the history of measurement. And what's interesting, John Neal says this in All Done with Mirrors, and I correspond with John Neal. He's still alive now. He's on a couple uh, forums that I'm on. But he said it was a tremendous discovery of the metrologists that all ancient systems of measure, and I mean all, Sumerian, Chinese, Babylonian, the British system, they're all connected. They're all connected. Now, if if evolutionary happenings were true, then you'd figure, well, you know, in India, they'll develop one measurement, you know, the king's foot was this long, and England's going to develop a different set of measurements. And then, you know, China, you know, the emperor, his, his finger's this long. So, so they're all going to be unrelated. That's absolutely not true. They're all related by whole integral values, six to seven, 175 to 176 is a big one, nine to 10. It's unbelievable it, that every syst, every ancient system of measure is related by an integral ratio to all the others, all of them. It's unbelievable, which argues for an aboriginal beginning. Every effect has to have a sufficient cause. If the effect is all ancient systems of measure are connected, which is true, You've just never heard that because, again, metrologists are not part of the mainstream. They're not in there with anthropologists and sociologists and all the other people that are accepted in the mainstream. But that's what the history says. And so if all ancient systems of measure are connected, there has to be an aboriginal, a single aboriginal beginning, or it seems like that's impossible to have happened. You know, coincidence is far, far, far blown out of the water since all of them are connected. And so Enoch the father of metrology, walked with God. So there was obviously a connection between heaven and earth, the microcosm and the macrocosm back then. You asked when that broke. Well, the Enlightenment 
because part of what the enlightened tradition said when the enlightenment happened was they were casting off the superstitions of the past and this church had become very superstitious or some of the teachings of the church so if you if you connect church and god and that's not always a real connection but you can make a rough connection the people in church are into god or something so the uh the church was rejected the teachings of the church remember they put some of the priests into the guillotine etc you know uh they that was rejected as part of the superstitions from the past we want everything to be run on reason so we're going to start over what government is best john locke thomas jefferson we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal see there's that they started that way but endowed with their create with certain enabling rights among these life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and to secure these rights governments are instituted among men so the first purpose of government according to the enlightenment was to protect rights we're obviously leaving the enlightenment today because governments are not protecting rights the very first purpose of government, according to the Enlightenment thinkers, is gone. But the point is, the Enlightenment took reason to everything, to every science, to every history. Let's start again. We've had, we've, we've got such a baggage of superstition and religious falsehood hanging over us. Let's use the mind. And that's where the separation came in, because ultimately the direction became uh, just, you know, that, that things had to be... Uh, touchable, feelable. And so if we can't touch it, we can't measure it. And so the connection was broke from God because, you know, God is obviously not tangible the way that matter is. So I think with Enoch, you've got the connection, the, the closeness you're talking about with Egypt, they were closer to that golden age. So they incorporated more of that into where they were. And then eventually, you know, the, in, in the age, we're still in the age of enlightenment, even though we're quickly leaving it through this new dark age that's coming. That, that it's so really we're both both we're on the cutting we're also on the cutting edge of the age of Aquarius because the age of Aquarius is beginning. So you've got both both streams going, and I'm sure you did back in Enoch's day. If you read the actual stories of Enoch, he talked to the Nephilim, to the to the demons, to the giants. He talked rationally to them. He told them you're doing wrong things. You know, so there was there was an evil an evil going on around him in this golden age. And the age we live in is very promising age of Aquarius type stuff. Your, your podcast is kind of a, you know, a, a, a manifestation of that aspect. But there's obviously this dark age, you know, the, the, the throwing away of the enlightenment, the, the putting a value on free inquiry and free expression to, you know, certain accepted things. No, you're going to be banned. You're going to be cut off. You're going to be, you know, deplatformed. You're going to be whatever, you know, so. It's an exciting yet a dangerous time. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, this is kind of a big question, but uh, do you think you could get the listeners just kind of a, a very brief overview of, of what the official story, or, or kind of not the official, but the, the, the more widely accepted theory of, of what the pyramids are, why they were built, who built them, and and then speak a little bit about from from your point of view where that official story or, or where that <clears throat> more I guess agreed upon story is is also uh, maybe out of alignment or, or or lacking based upon what you've seen and what you found. Well, you know I I'm not the best poster child for that for this reason. Yesterday in my talk, mystery of Egypt, I did mention that as one of the points. I talked about a number of mysteries, and one of the mysteries is where are all the pyramid mummies? 
because this party line, just to answer your question, you know, the party line from Egyptologists that pyramids were built as tombs for the Pharaoh who built them. The problem with that theory, as I pointed out to my audience yesterday, is there's never been one mummy of a Pharaoh found in any pyramid. Now, there was a mummy found in Menkara's pyramid, but it was from many dynasties later. It wasn't Menkara himself. And so that that's a problem for that theory. But sometimes, sometimes alternative people that you know, make mileage on that, and they end up cutting down Egyptologists and, oh, look at your stupid theory. I think it's very possible that that uh, some of those have been robbed and they might be found. And, uh, you know, I've made friends over the years on the plateau with Dr. Mark Lehner, probably the most famous, uh, you know, Egyptologist, and Dr. Zahi Awas. I toured with him when, when uh, tourism was reopened after the uh, revolution in 2011, the Arab Spring, when uh, Hosni Mubarak, the dictator of 40 years, was thrown out by the Egyptian people. There was a tremendous uh, drop-off of tourism because anytime there's a revolution, people don't want to go to that country. And so in 2014, we reopened tourism. And, and uh, so I became friendly with Zahi Wester. Now, I'm basically adversaries to them because they stand for traditional forensic scientists. But Again, I'm not with those people that quickly slam them because Mark Lehner has sifted sand. Mark Lehner went to Giza as a Edgar Casey spiritual young man. He left college, came over here to try and find the secrets of the of the you know hidden chambers underneath the Sphinx, the Hall of Records, and somehow was converted from that to become a scientist who really studied there. He surveyed the entire Giza plateau. He spent more time on the Sphinx than anybody else alive today. He's surveying it, writing a book about it. His Yale PhD thesis was on the Sphinx. He sifted the sand. He's found he's found the breweries, the bakeries of the people that one time were there and who built the pyramids. So when he has asked, and I've heard him ask directly, what about Graham Hancock? You know, what about Robert Paval? What about the, and he says, look, he says, I hear the civilization that they talk about. I, I'm not afraid of those guys. He said, he said, I just don't find it. I just don't find the evidence there. The, ain't, the, the amazing civilization that I find evidence for here is the Egyptian. So because I, I you know, I, I know Dr. Lehner and, and he came, as a matter of fact, I made a present, I've made a couple presentations at major Egyptological gatherings. The RC, the American Research Center in Egypt has the largest Egyptological gatherings in the world and they allow you to submit a blind peer reviewed uh, proposal. And I've submitted several. And I've been accepted twice. So they, you know, they didn't like me when they got me there. They, they want, you know, the famous Egyptologists and stuff, but I presented because it was blind peer reviewed. And Mark Lehner came to one of my sessions about the trial passages, which are a hundred yards east of the Great Pyramid, a great interpretive key of the Great Pyramid. And uh, Mark Lehner told me what a good job I did. So a lot of my stuff can, can, you know, can be appreciated by people that are standard Egyptologists. But they, yes, but they fall short. I've already mentioned one way they fall short. They don't accept metrology. One of the main revelations from the past is metrology, and the Great Pyramid's all about metrology. They don't accept sacred geometry. They don't accept the layout of the Giza Plateau, which is obviously planned with phi and pi, and even the fine structure constant is there. I just wrote a paper about the speed of light. It found in the passages of the Great Pyramid, it was top 1% of papers on academia in terms of the number of people that viewed it, and I had comments from all over the world. So I really believe the speed of light, which is a very modern measurement, right? Who could have possibly known the speed of light before the 20th century, right? Before Einstein, who, well, I'm saying the Egyptians had, and there's, it, they, they, I've probably found at least nine ways that the speed of light is encoded in the Great Pyramid. That's the great failing of Egyptologists to simply call that coincidence. What they do, it's an old boys network. And you know, Mark Lehner, if you're listening, <laughs> It 
fess up. Fess up. You guys just talk to each other. All you guys that have the PhDs that in you know Near Eastern languages and all the things that are official. I've got you know three advanced degrees: theology, education, and political science. So I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm an independent researcher. And you guys don't listen to anything I say because you don't have to because I can't publish in your journals because I'm not an Egyptologist. So you can just reject and not listen to. So that's what most of the time Egyptologists do not even comment on things like Robert Grant or myself produce. And if they do, it's simply to say coincidence. So that's a major shortcoming, the inability to, to think that your science, somehow Egyptology, trumps theology, trumps engineering, trumps sacred geometry, trumps mensuration. You, you don't have to concern yourself with those things. It's like a huge built-in hubris, a conceit a pride that just and, and it really operates that way it's an old boys network and if they because they have enough you know you know the some so many of the you know national geographics smithsonians come to those guys as the experts that they can keep that kind of attitude because we're the ones that are the experts you know and uh, so you know that so so they miss the greatest revelations in the pyramid they can tell when they think it was built, how many blocks are in it, maybe, you know, what, what the material makeup is of some of the limestone. But they miss the most important thing, and that's the revelation of the measurements. So you, it, it's very interesting because you, you spoke about this idea of, um, you know, through these kind of integral values, through through these ancient numerical systems. I, I think you also spoke of it in, in like the alpha and the omega number, the, the, the Toth constant is it, kind of pointing towards this idea, as you said, that there was a, a, an aboriginal beginning <clears throat> to a lot of these systems. Um, but and it's also interesting because you're you're saying um, uh, also this idea that that the evidence seems to show that that Egypt was built by Egyptians uh, who, who were perhaps more advanced than we give them credit for that they were able to do these amazing feats. So where is that balance between kind of this Aboriginal beginning and and also the Egyptians being very very advanced? Because I you know a lot of people for can example I, can I jump in can I. Sure. Can I jump in? Yeah. I, I know I'm kind of speaking over the top of you, but I want to, I hear what you're saying. I want to, I want to get to that quickly because this, this is important to be said. I think that the revelations of number and measurement that in the Great Pyramid are antecedent to the Egyptian society. So to say that they, the Romans built great things, but they copied the Greeks. They got the math from the Greeks, they, the golden proportion they got from the Greeks. But the Romans were great builders. The Egyptians were great builders. And the people that make fun of them because they're, how could their copper and their loincloth, that, that is so demeaning. That is so demeaning. One, of the lady, one lady got up out of my talk and left yesterday because she shouted out or something like, what about, you know, the copper tools? Okay, let, let's just talk about that for one second, okay? Because, you know, I, I know what, I, I, this, this, there are two religious schools here. Those that believe that the pyramids were built by Atlantis or by another ancient high civilization, no, not there. They're religious about their belief, and it almost doesn't matter what you say they are. And, of course, the, Egyptian, the, the Egyptologists are just, you know, the Egyptians built it, and that's it. And those camps are entrenched. And 
they they the, this this camp especially the, it's ancient high tech they, they don't they're not open to evidence because there is very profound archaeological evidence the egyptians built the pyramids the type of evidence they tend to use is how could they have done this that's not an argument that's like your inability sitting in a you know in in a comfortable chair watching all kinds of tv and the super bowl and everything else and you say oh how that, that's not that's not science the science the, the real question should be how did they do that how was that done instead of they couldn't have done that? Look at this hole. They couldn't have drilled that. Oh, yes, they could have. There are so many videos showing that all those things they say, they, how could they have done that? Which is really a question. It's not a scientific inquiry. If you do the scientific inquiry, every one of those things can be answered. Let's take the copper one. All right. So they didn't. Have, they had copper. Anybody knows that studied this, the Egyptian copper was arsenical. It had arsenic in it. It was as hard as steel, almost. That doesn't solve it because even if the Atlanteans who supposedly built it had steel, it takes much more than steel. It takes craftsmanship and know-how. I can give a steel chisel to you and you won't do a candle to what the, the Atlanteans or the Egyptians did. Whether it was the Atlanteans or Egyptians with their steel or arsenical copper, it takes great skill to do it either way. So to just laugh off those loincloth copper using Egyptians as, as stupid, you know, Aboriginal pygmies, <laughs> instead say, whoever did it, Atlantis or Egypt, they were really skilled. So why jump over the Egyptians? They couldn't have done it, obviously. Or why, why is it so obvious they couldn't do it? You know what? They had the same technology that the Romans had. There was no more advanced technology in the Roman period than there was in Egypt. They had the same, the same set of leveraging tools. The Romans simply left records of how they moved those stones. The Romans left all Vitruvius, who's still used in architectural schools today. Vitruvius's book on architecture, he tells how they did it. The Egyptians just didn't tell. For some reason, it was a craft that they held sacred and they did just like, you know, you don't become a pipe fitter unless you apprentice yourself to pipe fitters and you join the pipe fitters union and now you learn to do that. All crafts protect to a certain extent their craft, and the Egyptians seem to. So they just didn't leave the records. The Romans did. You know, the the, the uh, YouTube channel Sacred Geometry Decoded has done a bunch of stuff on this. He shows that ancient riggings in in, in boats just do a Wikipedia search on the power of a pulley, the leverage that a pulley develops, and a pulley can be a piece of wood that's rounded. The, the Egyptians were great at making rope. I told you I'd make my living as a tree climber. The 5,000-year-old the rope that came out of Khufu's boat, I could climb a tree with today and be safe. I've seen the rope. This is 5,000-year-old rope. It's still usable today. They were great at making ropes so they could pull things. And you, you look at the power. The, 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 it's not the steel crane. It's not the steel in the crane. It's the boom leverage. They had cedars of Lebanon. There's all kinds of records of the cedars of Lebanon that they imported. A cedar of Lebanon is the same thing as a steel it's it's not the steel that does it it's the leverage of the pulley and so they they were great engineers they were great engineers they use simple means this let's take this argument oh it would have taken 50 you know 5000 years to build a pyramid because it, you know you had to lay a block every you know second if you say if you do it that that argument is not based based on studying what's actually there first of all they take the wikipedia 2.3 million blocks in the Great Pyramid. There's probably a lot less. Zahi Was told me one time he thought there was a million blocks in the Great Pyramid. So let's say it's a million or two million. All right. 
The bottom two courses are the ones that you can't fit a piece of paper through. The joints are tight. The ones at the top, watch any YouTube video of a guy illegally climbing the pyramid who's got his GoPro on, and you look at the stones as you go up. Sir Flinders Petrie, the father of Egyptology, says he thought a different pharaoh was there because it's such crappy workmanship up at the top of the Great Pyramid. Just look at the stones yourself. There's a bunch of fill in the Great Pyramid. Peter James wrote the book, Saving the Pyramids. He was the one the Egyptian government hired to renovate the pyramids, especially the Step Pyramid. He knows more about the internal parts of the pyramids than anybody else. He wrote. He said there's a bunch of fill in there. There's They found sand up in the, behind the Queen's Chamber. What's That's not block. So we assume it's this every block is perfectly put together. No, it's not. They were practical engineers. The bottom two courses are tight because that's what needs to be tight to hold the pyramid together. The rest, they, they used fill. There's all those voids that we're finding now. So it doesn't take, you know, 500 years laying a block. It's like it, it was it was built in the time frame that, you know, Herodotus said probably 20 years. And Herodotus, who interviewed the Egyptian priest, Herodotus, the father of history, they told him that there were simple wooden contrivances that were used to lift blocks from one layer to the next. They don't need these big ramps that are impossible. You've got a, a simple wooden contrivance. It's the power of leverage. So you move, you know, three ton, five ton blocks from one layer to the next, one layer to the next. You just move the simple wooden contrivance up to the next lever. You lay the blocks up. And then the big, the big ones, the granite, because all, you know, the pyramid's built in a quarry. It's built in a limestone quarry. So all the blocks are right there. The outside high quality limestone tour came from across the Nile down about five miles. So all the, the limestone's right there. The granite, which came from 500 miles away in S1, S1 is next to the Nile. So they just put it on a boat. The, the evidence is all over that the harbors came right up to the pyramids, the harbors that were built by Ankaf, the, the, the civil engineer. And so they floated it you know, from the quarry where it was cut the perfect size, floated it down the Nile, brought it to the pyramids, and then through the ropes that they had, through counterweights, through now they've got this upward passage system going. Now they lift these roughly 100 big granite blocks up there. It's a doable project. And when, when those people say we couldn't build the Great Pyramid, tell you, that's ridiculous. Go, go to Beck Teller, one of the big construction companies, and she, of course, they could build the Great Pyramid. They just won't because there's no money in it. But we're totally capable of building the Great Pyramid. There's no big, big, mysterious thing. There are blocks laid upon blocks with rooms inside of them. Any architect gets a plan and builds a structure that has a roof, and then inside there are rooms. That's what the Great Pyramid is. So, you know, there's a... Uh, so, I, but, but again, what I started with, so the Egyptians built it. There's tremendous archaeological evidence for that. I could go, I, I gave a talk at the, the Rotary Club locally here asked me to give a talk. I talked about all the archaeological evidence, the Egyptians built a pyramid, but I said that the esoteric knowledge that's there, the sage knowledge, all the phi and the pi and all that stuff, that was put there by designers who I think had a connection to the ancient world, the, 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 the Atlantis world, the world where there was a, a you know, a, a, a more of a golden age. The Egyptians, the sages had it. You know, the Egyptian mystery schools, all the Greeks went to that. The, all the, this Greek knowledge, supposedly, when they discovered the size of the earth and all this stuff, they got that in the Egyptian mystery schools because all the Greeks, you, you can find records that they studied in the, the Egyptian mystery schools. So the Egyptian mystery schools had the knowledge from the ancient past. And so that knowledge was incorporated into a building that the Egyptians built. But it's just like if I might give you plans, I asked you to build my shed. You don't know that I put 
the length of the, the distance to Jupiter in my plans. I've got the, the distance to Saturn there. I've got the size of the moon because the, the window I cut, I, I made proportional to the moon. You don't know that. You just take the plans and you build what I told you to build. Okay, here, I built your shed. Great, thank you. Now I show people all the revelations of the solar system that I put in my shed, which you, the builder, are totally unaware of. So there, you know, there's this ancient wisdom from the past that was brought into the Egyptian mystery schools. The Greeks learned from that. And the, the sages made sure that got into the building of the Great Pyramid. So that's the way so, I explain it. To me, to me that's yeah. that's what it is. You know, and I So that kind of sage wisdom and and you also spoke about these this idea of sacred geometry. How would you define sacred geometry? And then um Maybe if you could give some some examples, or you know, even uh, before we started, you you were showing me the the presentation you had because I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize is just the, the the unbelievable sacred geometry that is in the pyramids, and 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 how, as you said, you, you find it in all of these aspects with with these numbers. Okay, well, of let, pi. Let, me, let me try and let me try and do that then. So let me go to uh, uh, share the screen. And I'll say share the entire screen and I'll say, let it be this one. Okay, so I'm going to say share. So I'm going to uh, move that over there. Okay, so can you see me with a backwards hat on here in the Great Pyramid? Yeah. Are you seeing that? Okay. I am. So let's do, okay, I've, I've got this link to the holy shaft here. So let me see where that's going to take us. So let me click on that. Uh, let's see uh okay go to slide 12 okay all right so let me see if this is going to work here okay so here's one of my discoveries at giza and i would say this is an example of sacred geometry okay so that green dot if you can see it right there that's a shaft it's a deep shaft and it's along here's the uh, causeway here's the coffrey pyramid there's the causeway here's the sphinx over here the shaft is near the osiris shaft but it's not the osiris shaft so i call it the holy shaft. And here's why. There is a picture of it. It's just this simple, unassuming shaft. But what's interesting, what makes it kind of different, it's a circle within a square. You can see the circular region inside of it, but it's a square. The circle and the square is an ancient symbol of the, the connection of the macrocosm and the microcosm, the connection of God and man, the connection of heaven and earth. That's what this simple, humble shaft says. Okay. So here I am with my colleague, Will Wire, who's uh, a graphics artist for Robert Grant and helped him a lot with the Gaia series he did. He was there with me at the Holy Chef taking some measurements. Okay, so if you draw a circle around it, uh, it's 504 ancient cubits to the southeast corner of Khufu, to the eastern edge of Khafre, right through the middle in the south there, of Kenkawes, the tomb of the first female ruler in the history of the world, who was the mother to some pharaohs. And through the fissure of the Sphinx to the east there, you can see it goes right through the fissure. The fissure is that part in the haunches of the, of the Sphinx that the ancients considered holy. It was like a bruise, a holy bruise on the Sphinx. It goes right through that. So this circle formed by the center of that shaft I call the Holy Circle because it touches all four of the monuments in that area. And it's exactly 880 feet long, which is 504 ancient cubits. Okay. So the circumference is 3168 ancient cubits. That's just, you know, uh, 504 times 
two times pi. Okay. Sorry now, the great can, can you just uh, can you tell the audience what a qubit is for anyone who is unfamiliar with that? Well, uh, there there are a number of ancient qubits, but the uh, the Egyptian royal qubit is usually given as one point seven one eight feet which happens to be the Euler number, 2.718, a modern constant that's used widely. It's, you know, just like phi and pi are constants, so is the Euler constant. So Euler is 2.718, so you subtract 1, and you get 1.718, which just happens to be the length in feet of the ancient royal cubit, which is 20.62 or 20.625 inches. And that was used all over the Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid, for instance, is plainly built by royal cubits. Now, the ancient cubit is an ancestor to the royal cubit. Some call it the cubit of Noah, just for lack of a better name, but because the, the, the ark was built, you know, with, with cubits, uh, according to the Bible. Uh, Harry Siebertson, in his book, The Measurements of the Gods, talks about this. He doesn't believe that the, that's a true story, but he believes it's given in the Bible to give the numbers. So whether you believe the story or not, the numbers are there. Okay. So 504 ancient cubits is the radius from that holy shaft to the circle and then 3168 becomes the circumference. Okay, so if you take the gold square I put around the Great Pyramid, look at this around the Great Pyramid, it's 3168 Egyptian inches. Now look at that, this holy circle, which I discovered has an area of 3168, the circumference of that circle and 3168 Egyptian inches, not ancient cubits. So it's the same number, but a different measuring system. Okay, and then there's Stonehenge. So I superimpose Stonehenge on the screen. Okay, so those outer circle of Stonehenge, the circumference is 316.8 feet. So look at that 3168, 3168, 3168. Okay, so if you square the circle, it of course is going to have the same perimeter because that's what it means to square the circle if you're doing perimeter squaring. So the square that corresponds to that circle is 316.8 feet. So if you square the holy circle, which I discovered, of course, it's going to have a perimeter equal to the circumference of the circle. They're both going to be 3168. Okay. The reason I did that, so, so notice this, the 3168, there's a connection in number. So this is what makes this sacred, is that you're hiding things. You, you know more than just that, hey, I just drew a circle. Hey, I just squared the circle. And of course, squaring a circle is, let me say something quick about that. There were five unsolvable problems in math through the centuries. And one was how to square the circle. There was no formula. If I have a square that's eight inches on each side, what size will be the radius of the circle that has the same area or the same circumference? Well, there is no formula. No formula exists except, oh, the Great Pyramid creates the formula. Because if you take the height of the Great Pyramid as a radius of a circle, that circle circumference will equal the base of the Great Pyramid. So the Great Pyramid practically solves an insolvable problem of math that squares the circle. So here we've got this, you know, so this is this is sacred geometry. We've got this, this connection of 3168. So, okay, now let's look at the side length of each one of those squares that I just created, okay? So the side length of Stonehenge is 70, 79.20 feet, 7920. Okay, for the side of the Great Pyramid, it's 792.0 inches. And for the side of my holy circle squared, it's 7920 
792.0 ancient cubits. So look at this. The diameter of the Earth is 7920 miles. Now, what's super interesting to me is that in Stonehenge, the 7920 is given in feet. In the Great Pyramid, the 7920 is given in inches. In the Holy Circle, which I discovered, it's given in cubits. And in the Earth, it's given in miles. So this Holy Circle that I discovered on the geometry of Giza, I call it holy because it's saying, hey, we knew the size of planet Earth long before the Greeks supposedly discovered it. Okay, so, you know, uh, I'm just, just you asked to show something quick. I showed something quick there uh, to, to, you know, show, show the, what you're asking me. That's, that's a, to a certain extent how you can have measures. I'm having a little trouble with my mouse here now. Let's see. Okay, there we go. All right. I, I put this screen off to the side, so I didn't want to be talking to people like this. I wanted to put it in front of me. So, so that's one example, you know, but uh, another would be this, another answer to the, your query about uh, sacred geometry, because, uh, you know, for instance, Alan, the channel Sacred Geometry Decoded uh, on YouTube, which is a great channel. He's, he's a brilliant polymath uh, like Robert Grant. He sometimes says, you know, it's not sacred the way some people think. Uh, he, he thinks it's more just actual geometry. And in that sense, I think that the 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 shapes, just like numbers, like Robert Grant will tell you, he's written a couple of best-selling books about numbers. Numbers have personality, just like we could say, are you a Leo, are you a Sagittarius? So, you know, people obviously have personalities. Numbers can be measured the same way. Numbers have properties, and 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 the same thing could be said of shapes. There's the you know five Pythagorean uh, solids, you know the, the the Platonic solids, the five Platonic solids, and that's all there are. You know, there's the there's the, we're so they're a finite group of things, and I think they have meaning, just like the constants phi, 1.618, the golden mean, the golden proportion, the Fibonacci series, pi, 3.14159, you know, the uh, Euler. You know, I think those all have meanings. I, I think that pi relates to eternity because you take a straight line, a radius, you apply pi to it, and it becomes eternity. It's a way to, you know, the golden proportion, you know, the Fibonacci spiral increasingly goes to 1.618, not quite reaching it. It's getting more perfect all the time. It's like growth, you know, because the, the, that, that growth, the growth pattern is in sunflower seeds. It's in pine cones. It's in galaxies. You know, it's, there's a lot of ways that that, that that manifests. And so phi is the golden proportion. It's growth. It's growing more perfect learning more because like what we all want to do we start as a baby then we become a, you know a child then we're a man there's growth so phi is growth pi is eternity euler you know what's so interesting one of the many manifestations of the euler number is i, I sometimes show my students okay no you go to a bank and one bank compounds annually the other bank compounds you know quarterly the other bank says we'll compound 12 times a year what if a bank said we'll compound your money a million times a second. Which bank are you going to put your money in? You're going to put your money in the bank that compounds your money a million times every second. And you know how much money you'll have when you do the studies on it? About the same as the guy that the, the bank that compounds quarterly. Because of the Euler number, there's a limit 
<laughs> it sets a limit on compound interest. And uh, so, so Euler would be limits. The way that, that pi is eternity, Euler system either are limits. The, the universe creates limits. And uh, Robert Grant is constantly showing the interplay between pi and Euler all through the Great Pyramid and all through sacred geometry. But there's this interplay. And isn't it interesting? You got eternity, but there are limits. Oh, I'm going to live forever. But am I going to die at 56 or 79? You know, there, there's this, you know, this interplay between infinity and all the wonderful thoughts and powers of I'm going to be mummified and make it to the next life versus, you know, am I going to get my my mummy casket made in time before I die? The practical limits of 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 life. So I just think that just as those Greek constants that are part of the universe, phi, pi, and Euler, have personality and meaning, and human beings have personality and meaning, and plants have different vegetative qualities and stuff, so shapes do. And in that sense, geometry is sacred. It's very interesting. Often if you listen to someone who has synesthesia, uh, they they very much describe numbers like that that they each have a personality they have a color they have an emotion they have a pattern um so yeah that that's fascinating you you were talking about the fibonacci sequence and and that's also one of the things you you talk about a lot in some of your work is also this this kind of fibonacci spiral that you discovered with the great pyramids and, and that there's actually an origin point that that's a physical point on the land could could you speak a little bit about that yeah, let, let me see if I've got something on that in uh, in visual form here. Um, okay. Okay, so again, I'm going to remove our screen here and go to uh, the keynote. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back to the screen where I had uh, this one. Let's see if I've got it here. Uh, hmm. I don't see it there. Let me look and just see if it's uh, okay. Maybe this is it right here. Let's see. Yeah, let's look at this one. Okay, so um, on the left are five marks in the pavement of Giza. Now, one of my presentations to Egyptologists was about those five marks. Those are right to the east of the Great Pyramid. And all the archaeologists say that these pavement markings were put there at the same time as the pyramids. So whoever built the pyramids put these marks there. So I, I studied these five steps right here, okay? So uh, Roberto is one of the young kids that when we were during COVID, I had some tours canceled. So some young kids came with me to just be research assistants. And here we're headed toward the Fibonacci origin, which I'll talk more about in a second. So th that mark right there was different than the other four marks in terms of where it pointed. So here's a top view of the Great Pyramid. You can see the passages in inside there. Okay, and you can see the five marks. My artist drew them off over there. Okay. So there's that fifth mark, okay? The other four marks all pointed, these are the pointings. If you can see these black lines I'm pointing to here, because this is where the five marks were right here, if you can see my twirling uh, laser pointer, okay? Okay, 
the, the, these marks pointed on the ground, pointed to specific places inside the Great Pyramid. There was no that were off. Like there wasn't one that pointed over here and touching nothing. There wasn't, none of these pointings were like over here. They pointed to the dead end passage, the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber. But now this one that I have the red circle around, it pointed it differently. And here's where it pointed right here. Okay, so you've got the five marks I just showed you point through the Sphinx directly through the fissure on the sphinx the fissure is a holy part of the sphinx it's like it's wounding it's like this sacred wounding it goes right through the sphinx and it goes to the fibonacci origin now the fibonacci origin so right goes to the sphinx there there i am standing in the paws of the sphinx when you have a private entrance you can get that close to the sphinx so where is it pointing here so Here's this Fibonacci origin following the, the golden ratio of 1.618. You could just do a Google search and they'll show you how to construct a Fibonacci spiral like that. And it's totally built on phi. And it works itself to an origin where it keeps spiraling in eternally, but it, it's so small, the point, that basically it's a point. It's an origin. And so you can see that this spiral goes through the center of the three main Giza pyramids. That can't be by chance. Those pyramids were laid out with this Fibonacci spiral. And so this origin point, which is called the Chamber of Toth, the Egyptian god Toth, who's the, the Enoch, the, the father of the, the god of measurement, you know, the god of knowledge. This is what this point is. And so I became obsessed with trying to get to this point on the earth because this point is a great pyramid. This point is a great pyramid. This point is a great pyramid. And you continue on this Fibonacci spiral, which is a sacred geometric form. And I wanted to go there. Okay. So here I am with Roberto. And when we followed that point, it led us to this thing on the ground, which looks like a spiral. Like that's unbelievable. I mean, it's just a symbol. But the Fibonacci spiral is just a symbol. The pyramid is just a symbol. They're all symbols. And so we followed these symbols to a GPS point. And here's this thing that looks like a Fibonacci spiral. Okay, so that's one example. Here's another one. I went a different time. I calculated a slightly different point. That's amazing. That bird just flew to you. They never do that. So, okay, you know what? And I don't think you're seeing that. that uh, let me bring that over here. Uh, I actually, you know what I'm going to have to do? I think you didn't see that video, did you? I didn't I see the video. Okay, that's because it's showing on my other screen. I just disconnected one of my monitors. Let's try it again. So let's let's go to uh, let's go to this. Okay. So I'm going to just punch ahead real quick. That's me and Roberto headed to the the origin, the Fibonacci spiral. So. Here's, um, again, just what I just showed you. Where is that point? So you follow the Fibonacci spiral. And we calculated that, you know, using Google Earth and using the best calculations we could. And it's hard on a 3D Earth to get this exact. So I've calculated several different points, but they're all in the same area. And what's so amazing about them is that that point is this protected space like the Garden of Eden. 
It's like you've got on one side the desert, there's camels going by, there's ATVs, there's horses, there's all this movement out there. On the other side, you've got condominiums, you've got life. And where this spiral comes down, the origin of this sacred spiral is in this magical place that's protected. You're not supposed to go there. No one's ever there. It's like the Garden of Eden. The butterflies are flying. It's just unbelievable. Okay. Okay, so we were led to this point, and there happens to be this thing on the ground, which is a spiral. I mean, I, you know, who knows how that got there? Okay, another time that I went, we calculated a slightly different spot. So here I am. The moment I said that the bird flew that, that's amazing. That bird just flew to you. They never do that. Maybe it's got a nest there. Look at this. Look at this. It's coming right here. Look at this. Now tell me that's not a sign. So the ibis is the bird of Toth, and these are like ibis birds showing us, trying to show us something. The first one is where the lines come together. The second is where you sort of felt the bird. And look at this triangle, and there's three birds. Look, one, two, three. I'm in the center of the triangle. Look, one, two, three, it's a triangle. The triangle. The three birds are sitting in a triangle. Tell me there's not something special going on here right now. Like we are near the, the Fibonacci origin and those birds just form a triangle. Okay, so um, I'm trying to figure out how, oh, there we go. Okay. Okay, so you know, that, that gives you a feel. So I'm an explorer. And when I saw the sacred geometry that said, you know, there's an origin that from the spiral that goes to the center of the three Giza pyramids, that had to be designed. That had to be designed before the pyramids were built. Somebody designed that spiral before the pyramids were built. So when I was going in search of the Fibonacci origin, a GPS point, and as a matter of fact, I've asked the greatest sacred geometrists I know in the world to calculate that point. I just did it two or three days ago because I'm going to Egypt next month and I'm going to go in search of that Fibonacci origin again. I asked Gary Osborne, if you look at his work, he's tremendous in taking geometric shapes and placing them on the real earth. The measurements he's made, on the Giza Plateau, because he's the, the leading, uh, you know, UFO incident in the world has become not Area 51. It's the Rendlesham incident from from England. And he's the one that wrote the book on that. And some of the revelations that came out of that are amazing. And so that's led the, the seven coordinates that were found as a part of that download from that UFO incident. Uh, one of them is Giza and it centers all the other ones. And so Gary Osborne is great. So I asked him to calculate that point for me and he hasn't gotten back to me yet. I know he will in a couple of days. And Ian Douglas. So if you look at uh, iandug.com, he's a great sacred geometer. I asked him to calculate that point again. And I've made my own calculations. They're all in about the same area, but they're slightly different points because it's a, it's a calculation on a real earth. And it's hard, you know, you're not playing with just a, a piece of paper. You're, you're dealing with a spheroid, oblate spheroid earth. But so the point is, you can see why from those couple of clips I showed you why I want to do it. There's something magical about that origin. And it was designed a long time ago. It's part of the revelation of the pyramids and it was called the House of Toth. As a matter of fact, Larry Hunter, who uh, 
spent a lot of time there and, and uh, had a house there and stuff. He he told me he has the keystone from a house that was there. I've heard other people say it was. I haven't been able to find it yet in there because every time I'm in there, those couple of clips I just showed you, the military is right near there. We had to climb walls and go through places we weren't supposed to, to get there. It's like you're going to get in trouble. Get out of here. You've got a short amount of time. Get in. Get out. That's that's really what's happening. I've never had time to really thoroughly, and they and they've got tighter security than ever. So I don't know if I'll even be able to get in there uh, next month in October. But I'm looking forward to trying. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, there's so much, and even just kind of following your Instagram account, there, there, there's so many different things you've done. So so that would be amazing. I I would love that. Yeah, you know, my, my Instagram, I've really kind of gone a different direction because I don't spend much time with it. So usually I'll throw out a story, you know, just something quick. Sometimes it's something local from Tennessee that I'm doing. I used to spend a lot more time making the videos and uh, really, you know, revealing things. I've just started writing a couple books now and I've gotten off. So I, I haven't been able to put because my Instagram channel is where most of my tourists come because I've got a pretty big following there. Uh, my tours get filled pretty much through my followers on Instagram. And so uh, I keep a connection by throwing a story out there, you know, but again, uh, if you're following my Instagram channel, you know that I'm not putting out there the kind of quality videos that I used to, because I haven't been spending time making those, but I probably will, you know, get, get back into that. But I've got a couple of writing projects I've been working on that, that pretty much have, you know, put that back. But yeah, so, so, uh, uh, the YouTube channel is not very a very big channel, but if you go look at my YouTube videos there, I put a lot into those, most of those, and there's a whole bunch of revelation there. Great. And so, yeah, just well, to mention that, my, my, uh, you'll probably put this in your notes and stuff, but uh, greatpyramid.org is the website. Great. So just think of Great Pyramid. You know, I, I was early on in the web. I was one of the founders of w when the web came on and so I got the top level domain names. I didn't buy them later from somebody. You know, I, I've been great. I've got greatpyramid.info, greatpyramid.org, uh, great-pyramid.com. I mean, I've got top level domain names because I was an early adopter. So just think of Great Pyramid. And since I'm a not-for-profit organization, the American Institute for Pyramid Research, of which I'm the director, is a not-for-profit corporation registered in Tennessee where I live. So .org is the appropriate, you know, uh, internet handle so to speak so greatpyramid.org if you go out there you see the tours i give but also you'll see links to my discoveries and that's where you could you know uh find some more stuff too right so maybe kind of to bring this to a closure what um after all of these things that you're looking into and kind of discovering the, the sacred geometry and um do you have a sense? I mean, I know it's a big question, but do you have a sense of of, of why they were designed that way? Of what the builders were getting at? Uh, was it something they were trying to to code? Uh, some prediction of the future? Uh, some language they were trying to express? So what do you, do you have any sense of that? You know, that, that's a great question because you know, uh, if you look at the history of architecture, you know, the pyramids are unique. And so, you know, and they're not, it's not, you know, obviously, if you're going to build a house, it's easier to build an igloo or pop a tent than it is to put all those stones together. So, so really, the question you're asking is really one everyone should be asking, you know, one thing I'll say that I found, and, and uh, you know, this would take some laying out, to, but they're, they're screaming, we're a circle. There are so many ways I've seen that the, the pyramid is mimicking a circle. You know, I'm a circle. So, and, and you know, there, there are those that say there was an orb on the top. 
both Robert Grant and I agree there never was a top stone. This legend there being a golden top stone at one time is ridiculous. There's no evidence that there's no evidence there was ever a top in the Great Pyramid. As a matter of fact, some of my research has shown that the top that's there now is saying I'm the top. You know, that top, there's a couple ways of, you know, I, I could go through them. But so, so, you know, the, the shape is unique in and of itself, but the shape seems to be saying, think of me as a circle. And so if you take my idea that anciently, you know, uh, there's the, the YouTube channel, uh, what's his name, Marty, Marty Leeds, I think his channel's 333 or something. He talks all of the time that the circle is an ancient symbol of heaven and the square is earth. And you've got all this ancient symbology. So the merger of the macrocosm and microcosm, heaven and earth. So a circle. So the Great Pyramid is saying what Egyptian the, theology is saying, we want you to make it to the next life. We want you to get get out of here, get out of your mummy and be real in the next life. And so the, the Pharaoh wanted to be out by the imperishable stars, meaning the North stars, the stars that don't set. We, you want to be out there eternally. You want to be your star seed. You, you want to be out there. And so a circle symbolizes that. And so the pyramid maybe points up, but it's also symbolizing. And this is my answer to your question now. They're telling you that eternal life is possible. It's real. That's what I think the major quick answer is to that question. Wonderful, Larry. Well, thank you very much for your time. I, I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I would love to do part two. Um, okay, I think great, Jason. So much let's, uh, let's, let's keep that, you know, see what kind of response you get. And then, and then maybe we can more perfectly craft the next one. And then, uh, you know, people that like this can get the part two. <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, all right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Larry. It was very fascinating for me to sit down and talk to him. I think he's done some amazing work and he continues to do really amazing work, really bringing light uh, to, to the complexity of the Great Pyramids of Giza and how there's, uh, there's, there's a lot more to them and a lot more going on than, uh, uh, than we often know or is taught in more... Um, Kind of standardized uh, views of the, the history and the origins of the pyramids. So I hope you all enjoyed this show. Uh, as always, thank you for tuning in, for supporting this work. Uh, if you feel like you would like to support this work, that's always a really big help to me. Uh, Patreon is a really good way. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, to all of the people who have uh, supported that way, to all of the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. I really appreciate it. Uh, and if you're able to do that, thank you in advance. Um, if you're not able to do that, um, as always, doing some of the small things really help in getting this show out to a bigger audience. It helps with the algorithms of the show. So if you're viewing this on YouTube, uh, also Rumble, um, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that really helps. Leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. Uh, and then if you are listening to this with the audio version on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, following or subscribing to the show, and also leaving a starred rating and a short review that's a really big help as well. Uh, to everyone who's done that, thank you very much. And if you can do that, thank you in advance. 
Um, I'm not exactly sure of my next few guests coming up. Uh, I hope to bring on uh, one of my early teachers whose name is Dr. David Jubb. Uh, that should be a very interesting conversation. Um, I want to bring on a couple people to talk about Nordic shamanism. So uh, I believe I have two people lined up for that. Uh, and then we'll, we'll see where the episodes begin to fall from there. So I think that's it. I hope this finds you all well. Again, thank you all for tuning in. Again, I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you all on the next episode.